Here we go. There's my secretary. Um, we are in John chapter 16, um, toward the end of the chapter. We left off right around verse 29. If you don't have a Bible and you're here, there are some on that table back there, uh, but they're little, little tiny print, unfortunately. Um, the disciples, the, what, where we are is we are hours away from the crucifixion, the arrest, all of that. Seven trials Jesus is going to go through. Um, and three that are religious, four that are civil. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, they just left the upper room where Jesus has been speaking. If you have a red letter Bible, chapters uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, um, are pretty much all read with a few questions here and there. He has comforted his apostles because he know they know he's leaving. They know Peter's going to deny him. They know they're all going to be scattered. And so he is trying to give them peace and comfort. Um, and he's talked about the Holy Spirit. He's told them that they will see him again. And um, he's really acting as a prophet almost because he's predicting things that are going to happen precisely the way he says they will. Um, now we're going to see a little bit of overconfidence in the 11 apostles. Judas has already left. Um, and then in chapter 17, I can't wait. It's what's called the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's where we get to eavesdrop on Jesus as he prays to the father. Anyway, let's uh, dive in. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 25 of chapter 16. Those of you on Zoom, if you're awake, wave or say amen, even though I can't hear you. Beautiful. And those of you that are here, if you're awake, say amen. amen. Wow. Boy, that espresso is working. Anyway, verse 25 of chapter 16, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this language, but will tell you plainly about my father. Jesus knows there's so much more to teach them, but they're not ready for it. He's got to get through the cross. They don't understand the implications of that yet. Um, they do believe, but their faith is immature. Remember, great on a curve for them. They don't have the Holy Spirit that you do, um, that illumines the word and, and keeps you uh, saved. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. I am not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. What he's saying there is you're going to be able to go direct to the Father who loves you. You're not going to ask me for things. You may pray in my name, but you're going to ask the Father directly. Um, pretty cool. Verse 28, and I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. He's talking about the Father, we said last week, almost like he, the Father, is his home or destination, a person as opposed to a place called heaven, wherever God is, heaven is, right? Verse 29, that's where we left off. Then Jesus' disciples said, based on that speech you just gave, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see, verse 30, that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone asks you, ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. They're saying, oh, the light bulb just went on. We get it now. We're good. Theology-wise, we're good. And they're not. 
There's so much they don't know. I got news for you. There's so much I don't know. There's so much you don't know. God is smart enough to reveal to us what we need to know for the time we are in our lives fairly gradually, right? If it was an overload, you know, download of information, it would overwhelm us and we wouldn't be able to comprehend or, or process it all. So that's what they're saying. We get it now. Now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, om omniscience, knowing all things, which is a trait of God, by the way. Uh, so they're on the right track that he is God. He knows all things. And you don't need to have anyone ask you questions. Listen, he's their Messiah. He's their Lord. He's their, about to be their Savior. And he's also their friend. They want to gain acceptance from him. It's sort of like if you're in the army and you salute and you go, I get it. I got it. You don't want to ask questions to appear like you don't know what's going on. So they do believe, but it's a shallow faith. Um, uh, let's see. So the question is, how do you know that, Joe? And the answer is, and notice, by the way, verse 30, that we know that you know all things because he's predicted some things that have already come true and some will, and you don't need to have any more questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. This is the pre-existence of Jesus. Remember, we have to distinguish in a way between Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, and the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Christ, who existed forever in the past with the Father. No beginning. He came from God, lowered himself to become a man. They're saying, we get all that now. Verse 31, and Jesus said, great, you get an A+. Do you now believe? He's being ironic there. He's being even a little sarcastic, may I say. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you all will be scattered. I mean, this is you know, an hour away, maybe, maybe two. Each to your own home, you will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone. My father is with me. The point is this, if they really got it to the extent they're saying they did with their self-confidence, then they would have reacted differently to the arrest of Jesus. Peter wouldn't have chopped an ear off. They wouldn't have split and ran away like scared chickens they would have stayed with their Lord. We're willing to, Peter said, remember a couple chapters ago, Lord, I'm willing to die for you, right? He abandons his Lord as well. He has to be all alone though. In the plan of God, only one person is supposed to get arrested tonight and it's him overnight. If Peter gets arrested and crucified, Christianity is gonna have confused theology that we're saved by the blood of Jesus and of Peter. No, no. Or the blood of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. No, no, no. Jesus Christ has to be the only one. But their leaving him does show they don't really have it all together. Um, so it's quite a bit of uh, overconfidence, if you will. Um, they, they are, uh, Peter's going to deny him three times. We talked about all that. They're going to be upstairs, upstairs in the upper room on Easter Sunday, cowering in fear with the door locked, which proves they, they don't really understand. And you can't blame them that much.
Um, had we been there, we might've been right with them, afraid for our own lives. Uh, they don't understand the significance of what's going to happen as well either. So um, this is verse 32. Don't misread it or 31. It's a gentle rebuke. He's so patient with them and praise God with me and with you, right? We mess up a lot. We, I got it, Lord. I got it. And then we go off the rails. A time is coming, he says in 32, when you'll all be scattered all of you. Now, you would think a few of them would go, not me. They just listen. Uh, each to your own home, you'll leave me all alone. We won't talk a lot about this now, but I'll introduce the subject because when the crucifixion happens, we will talk about this. The, the, we call the crucifixion the great exchange but for this reason. Um, everything that a person can go through in life that's tough, Jesus did more so to the max, okay? Have you ever been abandoned by someone that loves you or said they loved you? Whether it's family or a friend betrayed you or a boss or a teacher or somebody, Jesus more so, okay? Not only his closest 11, 12, if you count Judas guys, but his own people, the Jews say, crucify him, the same people that a week before that, less than a week, said, hail king of the Jews, right? When he rides in on a donkey, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are messianic or Messiah scriptures. He is, um, if you've ever been wrongly accused of something or railroaded in a court of law when you were innocent, he more so. Because however innocent you were, you're still a sinner and so am I. He wasn't. He did nothing wrong. He has the audacity to say, which of you convicts me of sin? Go ahead, bring me a charge. Man, I wouldn't do that. People would have lists, right? Remember all these things you did? Not Jesus. So in every case, have you been through physical suffering? A lot of us have. Listen, the, the way he suffers on the cross is beyond anything we can imagine. The word excruciating comes from the middle, C-R-U-C-I, is from Latin for the cross. Out of the cross is what the word means, that kind of pain. So in every case, uh, everything we go through, he goes through in our place to extremes. So they're going to scatter and leave him. And he says, you'll leave me all alone, truly all alone. Mary, the Virgin Mary can't help him. Joseph is already deceased. None of the apostles, his brothers don't believe in him at this time. You leave me all alone. I love this. Yet I'm not alone. My father is with me. Beautiful, right? He may look like, well, the poor guy's all alone and the father is right there with him. There is a point during the crucifixion in which the father is not with him. Do you remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is so pure. His eyes can, the Old Testament says, so pure. He can't look on sin. How much sin was on Jesus? The sin of the whole world. All of that guilt. I don't even think we can comprehend what it was like for him from a spiritual standpoint to, standpoint to have been that close with God face to face for an eternity, that much in fellowship with God, day to day, moment to moment, praying, and then suddenly God turns his back. 
The whole day gets dark in the middle of the day. Remember, there's an earthquake when he dies and all of that. God has to turn his back on him. But for now, yet I'm not alone. My father is with me. In the gospels, every time Jesus refers to God the father, he calls him father, except on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's even a distance there. He doesn't call him father anymore. It turns out, and we'll do this when we get to the crucifixion, he says, my God, my God, why have, why have you forsaken me for the reasons I just mentioned? It's true. He's not just spouting scripture, but what he's doing is speaking the first line of Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of David written as if somebody in the first person is getting crucified. In that Psalm, it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And that was written a few hundred years before the Persians, which is Iran now, invented crucifixion. The Romans didn't invent it. The Persians invented it as a form of ultimate capital punishment. The Romans liked the idea and made it more public, put somebody up on a hill as a crime deterrent to say, you mess with the Roman Empire, that's going to happen to you. People were crucified absolutely, completely naked. A total shame thing. I know you've seen the little loincloth. It's a nice story. That's not how it went down. It was unbelievable pain. The Persians would leave the guy on the cross indefinitely. Let him die there. Let the birds pick at his flesh. I don't want to make it throw up or anything, but let's move on. The Romans would break the legs after a certain amount of time. So you can't lift yourself up to take a breath and you would die. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, I know. Let's get back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Good one. Not as loud as the first one, but good. I'm not alone. My father is with me. Verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You say, wait. How are we going to have peace from this? You just told us we're all going to abandon you. Peter's going to deny you. Judas is going to betray you. Um, you're going to die. We're not going to see you. You're going to the Father. You're leaving us with some Holy Spirit guy. We don't know what that is. You told us so we could have peace. Listen, the answer is there's something about knowing in advance what's going to happen that gives you much greater peace when the bummer happens than if you're shocked by it. He's, he's predicted for them everything so that on the one hand, they will do it. But on the other hand, they will say, wait a minute, Peter, this is exactly what he said we would do. You just denied him. And then it's exactly what he said would happen so that they would have some sense of, oh, he's, you know what? He's in control. He is Telling them, telling them ahead of time so they can have in him peace. And then he says this, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble, tribulation, persecution, some translations have. Trouble is a good word for that Greek word. In this world, this is the bad news. You, he doesn't mean every human being, although every human being has some rainfall in their lives, right? He means for Christians, you are now going to be my people behind enemy lines with a world, meaning the unsaved world, cosmos in the Greek, cosmos, same word, that hates Christianity, hates the Bible, hates those morals, hates feeling guilty for their sin or their whatever sin they have, and they're going to be against you. In this world, you will have trouble. 11 of the 12 apostles die martyrs' deaths. Uh, only John doesn't. 
in this world, you will have trouble. Is that true for us as well, do you think, or just those 11 guys? Us as well. But in America in 2021, there's not that much persecution compared to what there is in other countries. Could it happen here? As I said Sunday, you bet. Maybe faster than you could ever imagine. Already, if you teach third grade and you say Jesus Christ is Lord, let's take a look at John chapter four. You can, someone's going to write you up, probably lose your job. Jesus is like a four-letter word in school. Didn't used to be. In the early 1900s, when they taught kids penmanship, do you know what book they copied out of? The Bible in public school in America. Not now. You try that now. Good Lord. Anyway, you will. Uh, let's see. In this world, you'll have trouble. Here comes the good part. He ends with this. Take heart. Some translations have take courage. Chin up. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. You say, wait now, when is this? It's before he gets arrested, before the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension to heaven. Well, then how can he say, I have, past tense, overcome the world? Listen, he's God in human flesh. He knows so positively, absolutely, this has to happen this way. He's already seen it in his mind. God's already shown him. Nothing's going to surprise him now to the extent that he knows he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend to the point that in his mind, it has already occurred. God remembers outside of transcendent above space and time. So for him, all of time is like a parade you're watching from an airplane where you can see all of time. It's no sweat for God to predict the future. So he's saying this in the past tense, in the sense that it has already occurred. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians, um, have it in my notes somewhere, um, where he says that Christ uh, saved us and has seated us in the heavenlies. Past tense. And you say, I'm seated in Oakhurst, California. I'm seated in Virginia or wherever you are. There's a sense in which it is already accomplished that we are in heaven, not physically yet, but it's a done deal. In other words, nothing can change it. God reveals, Christ reveals to them what they need to know, okay? The main things are the plain things. The gospel is interesting in that it is water. Listen, it's like a pool of water this deep that a child can wade into safely. Okay, a child can understand Jesus died for the bad things I did and gives me his righteousness and will have eternal life. It's very simple. And yet the gospel is like an ocean so deep you can't find Jacques Cousteau can't find the bottom of the ocean of the gospel, right? He's down there with a sub. We have to go deeper. I don't see the way out. The point is, that's the beauty of the, the transcendent gospel. Let me give you an example. The book of Revelation. Would anybody raise their hand and say, I got it. I got that whole, forget it. There's Bible scholars that go, I, I don't know. The main things, though, in the book of Revelation are clear. Christians are going to have persecution. There's a coming antichrist. Christ is going to return. Um, there'll be some martyrs. He's going to judge the wicked and set up his kingdom. That's enough for now. Do we know all the details? Well, what's the mark of the beast? Who's the Antichrist? What's 666? I don't know, right? There are all kinds of theories, mark on your hand or forehead. It'll pan out 
the way it's supposed to, right? Um, but in your darkest moments, that's a good verse to remember. In this world, you will have tribulation, trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Translation, if the score of your life is 19 to 2 and you're losing, it feels like, that verse says by the end of your life, it'll be 900 to 19. You win because you're Christ's. So it's all going to turn out well. It's going to be a glorious uh, ending. Let's see. So we rest in that and who he is. And all that death can do for a believer is usher you into the throne room of God. To, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm repeating my whole sermon from Sunday. Anyway, it's a win-win, isn't it? Okay. Um, so I've overcome the world. Take heart. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 16. We're going to dive in now to chapter 17. The rest of his life, Jesus' life, which is just hours from now, all of the ministry from now on is prayer. No more real teaching. It's all going to be about prayer. John um, does not include the Garden of Gethsemane stuff. Partly because he writes way later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knows they already included it. He remembers it. It's already in there. He wants you to get another perspective. Does that mean it didn't happen? No, of course it did. Jesus sweats drops of blood, asks the disciples to pray. They take a nap. Do you remember? They're tired. Um, so chapter 17 is something exclusive to John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have this. John, I believe, is given a revision uh, or a second vision of what happened this night so that he can remember every single word Jesus prayed, okay? He says in the last chapter, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind everything I said to you. I believe that's what happened. So this is going to be Jesus praying to the Father, and we get to eavesdrop, and it's an amazing prayer. We always call our Father, which art in heaven, that prayer, we call it what? The Lord's Prayer. Literally, that is the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, the Father being prayed to by Jesus. In the Old Testament, when there were farewells of um, prominent patriarchs, Abraham, that kind of thing, um, there were often farewell speeches that included prayers. This, what we just read was his farewell speech. This is his farewell uh, prayer. You're going to see his desire for him to be restored to the glory he had before, his desire for his father's glory and the disciples' protection, because he knows they're going to need it. You'll notice he prays for himself, but he prays for the disciples in terms of verbiage, way more for the disciples he prays. They need it more than he does, of course. It's been called the greatest prayer ever prayed. Um, it's been called the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the New Testament, this chapter. Well, shut up and get to it, Joe. Okay, I'm almost done. This is my, my introduction. This is right before the Garden of Gethsemane. When this chapter ends, they're going to cross the Kidron Valley and go up into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but we're not there yet, but it's right before. This is also called Jesus's high priestly prayer. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called our high priest. The Jews had a high priest that was responsible for giving the sacrifices, representing the people to God. That's what Jesus is going to do. 
The strange thing is the high priest would sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle the blood on the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is going to be the high priest who sacrifices himself. He is both the lamb and the high priest. We'll get into that as we go. Uh, we already talked about that. I think we're good. Yeah. By the way, he hasn't performed most of his priestly duties yet. That's going to be the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. Um, okay. Verse one, you still awake? Good. Chapter 17, verse one, after Jesus said this, that's everything we read, 13, 14, 15, 16. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Reciprocal glorification. So after he says this, he looks toward heaven, which is a, a humble way of praying. And by the way, there is no absolute concrete um, posture for praying. Most Jews did not kneel or sit when they prayed. Did you know this? They stood with their hands up. Okay. He looks up to heaven to pray. Many, many times in the other gospels, you see him leave for an entire evening while they're asleep. He prays all night. What does he say? We're not told. Here we are. It's an awesome chance for us to eavesdrop. So he looks toward heaven. Um, and by the way, this is a, not a big deal, but we think of heaven as up, don't we? And hell as down. How was, was he a believer? He went, was she a believer? She went up to heaven, right? Jesus did ascend into the clouds in Acts chapter one, and they watched him. But I personally believe that heaven is not up or down. It's like a different dimension. Jesus says in the other gospels, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, right? I believe that Christ, God, angels are right here. Not way beyond Neptune, you know, way out there. A couple galaxies away, you take a ship. It'll take you a while to get there. Twinkling of an eye, right? But we do think up, don't we? And down. Um, hell also is a spiritual dimension in which it is separation forever from all things good, God, Christ, and even, I believe, everything else, including people. What do you mean? I believe it's like solitary confinement. I don't think, you ever hear this? I'd rather party in hell with my friends, man. I think you're going to be alone in hell. Outer darkness, it's called. In any case, now that I bummed you out, let's move on. The hour has come. Let's see. So he looks toward heaven. Father, the hour has come. All they've heard him say in this gospel four or five times is, starting in chapter two, Mary comes to him. Do you remember? Hey, they have no wine at this wedding. Can you help us out? Come on. Woman, my hour has not yet come. My hour hasn't come. They want to make him king in chapter, I think it's six. My hour hasn't come. Now he says, the hour has come. This is the whole reason he's come to this planet. And you know what it is? To die a bloody, horrible, painful death because he loves you. How much? This much? No, this much. Outstretched arms, that much. 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. He sees the cross as the crowning achievement of his whole life. The most glorious thing he's going to do isn't raising Lazarus from the dead, healing lepers or casting out demons or calming seas or providing loaves and fish. The most glorious thing that's going to glorify him is the ultimate act of humble service. Glorify your son. He's saying, make it all happen now, God meaning the cross, so that, notice, your son may glorify you. Now, if you have a problem with the first phrase, glorify your son, why is he asking for glory? Because it's his rightfully. He had it for a trillion years before that, before he came to earth. But notice, what's the motivation? Glorify your son so that you, Father, will receive glory. It's always about his father receiving glory. They both receive glory in this. Um, Verse 2. For you granted him, he's talking about himself in the third person. He means himself. You granted me, in other words, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all people. No. Did you see the distinction there? Okay. Look at it again. You granted Christ authority over all people. Does that mean everybody in the universe? Yes. He has authority over them all. Does he give eternal life to everyone? That's called universalism. There's churches that believe that, that everybody gets saved. Everybody. Nobody goes to hell. Um, There's a guy in Chicago with just a mega church. His last name is Bell. I can't think of his first name. And he teaches universalism, that everybody gets saved. Everybody. What's the point of dying on the cross then? What's the point of repentance? What's that we could go on and on? You granted him authority over all people. He has the authority. He will return to judge everyone, the living and the dead, believers and unbelievers. You have, uh, let's see, granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to who? Certain ones. All that you, Father, have given me. Okay, now this is a little bit of a strange concept if you're new to this Um, that's fine. But the idea here is that God had some people. Were they believers? No. But he knew those are the ones I've chosen. They're going to believe. And God gave those people to Jesus one at a time, including, you ready? You. Oh, you don't know how I lived back in the 90s and the 80s. Yeah, I know. You don't know how Peter lived or Matthew lived or he was a crooked tax collector. Even so, God chose you and them. They were, listen to, he's going to explain this three, three or four times in this chapter. This is only the first one. I'm going to give eternal life to all those that you have given him, meaning Christ. You with me? Keep your finger here. Um, do do this now or do it later? Now let's do this now. We're here. John six, go to John six, where this concept comes up again, go to John chapter six. Um, let's see. Verse 37, John six, 37, all meaning every single person that the father gives me will come to me. 
all. That means if the total number is 9,462,511, that's the exact number that will come. There aren't any that will be rogue and go, I'm not coming. Sooner or later, you were his, you came to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And what's your reaction going to be, Jesus? Some of them are going to be pretty horrible. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. God, do I fully understand this? No. But does the Bible teach it? Absolutely. God gave every believer to Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that he gives eternal life to. We'll talk more about that concept in a second. But it's a clear claim to deity, to being God, if he can give, he's the one, there's nobody else that can give eternal life. Is there anybody that will have eternal life in heaven that says, I didn't get it from Jesus? No. You say, wait, now, what about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the prophets? They lived before Jesus. Listen, Christianity, the world of religion, God's religion, real religion, the, f- the focal point is the cross. Those who were born, let me do this backwards for me so it's forwards for you. Here's the point in time where the cross happened. To, for people that lived before that, those of you on Zoom, is that right? I don't know. Anyway, f- for people who lived before the cross, they were, the believers were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Abraham, I mean, they all talk about it. Adam, and Eve knew about it. Genesis 3, I won't go there now. We'll do that later. Um, all the prophets speak of the coming Messiah. They looked forward to the coming of Christ, the cross, the resurrection. We, in time, look back to the cross for salvation. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The only way to get eternal life. So, uh, we already talked about that. By the way, when you hear Jesus pray, you really see into his heart and his soul and, and what really matters to him the most. He's not praying for, get me out of this. He's not praying for Rolls Royces or anything. They didn't make those for a few more years, right? Um, so he has the power, this is an astounding thing, to control the destiny of every single human being. Every single human being that ever lived will either be saved by him or judged by him when he returns. No exceptions. Um, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit too. Um, in Philippians 2, it says, uh, God exalted him after the cross and gave him the name that's above every name. Do you remember that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee, listen, should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Did you hear that? Every knee every tongue. You mean believers. I mean every tongue. Believers do it willingly now. Unbelievers do it regretfully and very fearfully as they're being judged. They have to admit he's the Lord. There's no one else. Um, Pretty amazing thing. So those that have the eternal eternal life that he gives, they get it through faith in him. Okay. So God granted him authority over all people. He gives eternal life, verse two, to all those you've given him. That's going to come back again. So we'll leave that for now. Verse three, if I made you define, raise your hand and define eternal life. I won't do it. So don't raise your hand on Zoom. I couldn't hear you anyway. What is eternal life? I'm going to guess you would, some people would say, well, you know, living forever. And that's, that's true you know, going to heaven. 
being with God in heaven, eternal life. What is eternal life? To be a Christian and know that even when you die, you live forever with God. All good answers. And they're all wrong according to verse three. They're right, but there's so much more. It's a surprising statement, verse three. Now this is eternal life. Jesus says, I'm gonna define eternal life for you people. The disciples are going, oh, I, th I think we know. Eternal, forever, life. We get it, move on, nope. Now this is eternal life, that they know you. He's talking to God the Father, that they know God. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life, apart from knowing God, listen, not knowing about God, not knowing facts and figures about God, not memorizing scripture, although those are all good things, knowing God, okay? I could read 20 books. Well, I read three or four books on Houdini when I was a kid. You know who Houdini is? The magician escape artist guy, actually really into the occult later in his life, unfortunately. I read a lot of books about him. I know a lot about Houdini. Do you know Houdini? No, he was dead long before I was born but I know about him. That's not what we're talking about here. He means know God experientially through faith, through his word, through Jesus who reveals the father to know God experientially. That's eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No one will be in heaven that doesn't know God and Christ impossible. How could you have gotten there? I was good enough. I didn't sin. Oh, yes, you did. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter one. So how do we know an invisible, all-powerful God? Well, that's a problem. Why is that? Because of sin, which creates a barrier that separates sinful mankind from God. Look at chapter one, verse 14. The word, which he explained earlier in verse one, the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Christ. The word, verse 14, became a man, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. What kind of glory was it, John? The glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, but what about knowing God? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Old Testament, by the way, says no man shall see God and live. It's so overwhelming, and our sin is so rotten in compared to a totally perfect, holy, full of light God, it would kill us. No man shall see God and live. And yet, no one has ever seen God, verse 18, but, the, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's bosom or side, has made him known, has revealed him. You want to know about God? You look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he reacts to people, the power he has, the miracles, the wisdom, all of it. Go back to John 17 now with me. Eternal life is that they know you. And Jesus Christ, only time he speaks his name in the third person like that. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the idea of knowing, listen, God knowing Christ personally. That would imply what? If I said, I know Paul McCartney, okay, then you would say, 
really? Do you, can you call him on the phone? Oh yeah, I have his home number. I have his cell number. We, we talk all the time. I know him. If I said, I know him and they say, do you talk to him? And I would say, no, I've never talked to him. Then you don't know him. You read books, constant communication between you and God. You know him in the word, the Bible, you know him in your heart and your spirit, and then constant communication with God. To know God, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one other criteria. You got to have your sins forgiven. Otherwise, that's a big elephant in the room that blocks your view and his view of you. Once those are dealt with, with the cross, we can know God personally, experientially. Pretty amazing thing. Verse four, he's talking to his father. Jesus is, I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Boy, I hope before I die or right when I'm dying, I can think that if I can't speak it. I think I finished all the work you wanted me to do. I hope that's what happens. Maybe it won't. Most people, I don't think, finish the work the way he did. He says, I've brought you glory on the earth. First of all, he brought glory on the earth to, to God the Father just by showing up as a baby in, in Bethlehem. What an amazing step down for him. He brought God glory on the earth when he was baptized, when he led, led an absolutely sinless, perfect life. The, the life you and I were supposed to live, he lived. The horrible death you and I were supposed to have, he took in our place. That brought him glory. Every miracle, every sermon, every loaf of bread that he made out of one or two loaves brought God glory. Every healing, raising all those people from the dead brought him glory. His whole life is encompassed here, but he's really meaning the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Ultimately, I've brought you glory on the earth, verse four, by finishing the work you gave me to do. All that's left now is the trials and the death. He knows exactly what's going to happen. It's not going to be pretty. He wants to do it because he loves you and me. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence. I'm going up, you know, about 40 plus days. Uh, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Meaning what? He was eternally God in heaven with the Father. He had ultimate glory, radiance, perfection, power, authority, and he let it all go to come to earth and be a guy in a little country called Israel. Amazing thing. So he's asking God to restore that glory to him that he had before. Verse six echoes what we read in chapter one, verse 18. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. There's that phrase again, people that God, the father gave Jesus, Peter, James, John, and the others must have thought, oh, no, no, no. I came on my own. I chose you, Jesus. And Jesus says in chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Wow. Ephesians 1, we're going to go there in a little while, uh, says that he chose you in Christ, listen to this, before you were born. It's pretty good. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. I wasn't even around. You think God didn't know you even then? He chose you way back then. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life 
way back then before you did anything. It's an astounding thing. Are you making this up, Joe? No, it's in the Bible. Um, let's see. Let's take one more little bite. Actually, you know what? Let's take our two-minute break right now and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off, and I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. We are back. It is Tuesday night, and we're in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. Find your seats, those of you that are here, and let's keep rolling, shall we? Jesus says he revealed God. That's an amazing thing. No human being could say that. I've been revealing God to people. You can try. You can read in the Bible. That helps. Jesus in flesh revealed God. All that he said, all that he did revealed God. And he re revealed God, notice, to those you gave me out of the world. Meaning unbelievers could watch Jesus and not get it. They could see the miracles and still yell, crucify him a few months later. Um, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Meaning the words, uh, rimata, I think it is in Greek, that came out of his mouth, he's saying, were God's words. These believers heard the words and um, believed, believed him. Okay, we already went to John 6.37. Go to John 15.19, just a page or two back mm -hmm. um, if the world let's go let's go to john 15 18 if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first if you belong to the world meaning the unsaved world the world would love it would love you as its own as it is you do not belong to the world but i have chosen you out of the world we're chosen out of the world to be separate from the sinful world and their values to be chosen for God and his value. That's why the world hates you. Okay, now let me take you to my favorite one, Acts 18. So from John, take a right. Next book over is Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, where this principle is illustrated. John, no, sorry. Acts chapter 18. Um, and Let's see, verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I, verse 10, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I, this is God speaking, I have many people in this city. You mean they're already believers? Nope. Not yet. But God goes, they're mine. You watch. They're going to come sooner or later. Some may come tomorrow morning. Some may come 19 years from now. They're all mine. Some of you took a long time like I did to come to God, kicking and screaming all the way while he was drawing you and getting that conscience thing going, right? That's not right what you're doing. Shh. Eventually, you go, all right, I can't resist anymore. Here I am, God. Um, okay, go back to John uh, 17, or do we want to go? Well, we might as well look at Ephesians 1 and really confuse you. So take a right from Acts, sorry, and go past the two Corinthian books, past Galatians to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A tonight. And your screen will be eliminated on Zoom. No, I'm just kidding. John, I, I say Ephesians chapter one. 
He's writing to Christians. Here it comes. You ready? Ephesians chapter one, verse four. For he chose us in him. When? When we believed. Eh, Wrong. Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless and in sight. In his sight. In love, he what? Predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with how holy we were now, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Predestined, chosen. Um, Let's see, do we want to go one more place? Yeah, Revelation 17. Go to Revelation, last book in the Bible, really easy to find for guys like me. Revelation 17. And what verse do we want, Joe? We want 17.8. Revelation 17, 8. This is during the Great Tribulation. Um, the beast is the Antichrist. Okay. Um, I don't want to get into a big long thing about that right now, but just chapter 17 of Revelation, verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and will go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the lamb, in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he was, he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Did you notice that thing in the middle? People of the earth are going to follow after the Antichrist. Everybody? No. All the ones whose names have not been written in the book of life from before the world began, which means what? You, if you're alive when that happens, Antichrist, planet Earth, tribulation, you will not be fooled if you're truly in Christ. Because the Antichrist is a one person that will rule the whole world with indwelled by Satan, empowered by Satan, even able to do miracles, Second Thessalonians says. However, you have the Holy Spirit. And even if it's tempting to believe in this guy, the Holy Spirit's going to go, no, no, no. A louder conscience. You'll know this isn't the guy. However, the unsaved world is going to see his absolute power, wisdom. I believe he's going to be the slickest politician talker you ever heard. I believe he's going to solve world problems like hunger and war and just bring us all together. He's such a great guy. When you tell your unsaved neighbors, I don't like that guy. I think he's evil. They're going to think you're nuts if you're alive at that time. Okay. Now that I've scared you, let's go back to John 17, shall we? Um, let's see now, where were we? Were we at uh, verse seven? No, verse six. They were yours. You gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Verse seven. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. Translation. They know that every time I did a miracle, every time I raised somebody from the dead, when I calmed that storm and said, Shh, and the whole storm, just the whole lake got like a mirror. They all know that was God's power being displayed in me. They get it. Do they fully understand? No, they're overconfident, but they do believe it's a a very primitive belief though. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Verse eight, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. Every word Jesus spoke 
was from God. They knew with certainty that I came from you. Bethlehem was not my beginning. I came outside of time way before that. And they believed that you sent me. Now, what they didn't know, but they're starting to get is they get that God sent him. He clearly has God's power, God's wisdom, God's authority, tells demons, get out of him, and the demons run away, right? What they didn't know is, what they loved was, he's here, yay. What they didn't know, he's here to die. Not going to be with you much longer. He's only in ministry about three years, three and a half years. That's it. They don't know, understand all that. They think it's all over when he dies on that cross, and it's only beginning. Okay, they knew with certainty that I, came, that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 9, this is interesting. I pray for them. Who is he talking about? The 11 disciples. He chose them, predestined them. He's praying for them. Listen to this. Kind of unusual. He tells you who he's not praying for. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. Got it? Not praying for the world. Well, that seems kind of cold. Don't worry. Later in this chapter, guess who we praise for? The world. But right here, he says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these guys. They're going to need it. Their world's going to be turned upside down when they see me beaten up and whipped and all bloody and swollen. You saw the movie Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, right? They're going to go, oh my gosh, it's over. Just like that. They need the prayer. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. What an astounding thing. What does God own? Everything, right? All the galaxies, all the gold, all the water, all the food, everything's God's. Jesus says we are mutually owners of everything because they're both equal. They're both God. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and, the glo and glory has come to me through them. Who's them? The 11. You say, how, how so? They, have, they haven't been that great. They've been arguing about which one's the greatest. Remember all that? They've, they're going to deny them. They're going to look like a bunch of really F students, right? But they will bring him unbelievable glory because when they get the Holy Spirit, they're going to turn their world upside down, spreading the gospel to every continent. Christianity is the largest religion on planet Earth right now. Amazingly, close second is Islam. It's amazing. Um, glory has come to me through them. Verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you go, what did he say? This is it. I will remain in the world no longer. He knows he's going to go. Within 12 hours, 15 hours, he'll be dead. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, there's a lot in this verse, so we got to kind of take it apart. Stay with me here. Okay, first of all, the first part's clear. I will remain in the world. I'm in the world no longer. He's going, right? Leaving the world forever? No. He's going to return bodily the second coming. 
the same way he came, uh, the way, same way he left, sorry, visibly, he's going to come back, not spiritually. Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, uh, seven or eight times predicted the second coming. All these dates. I used to have them memorized 1914, 1919, 1924, 1925, 1929. I'm pretty sure most of those are right. The last one was 1976. But that's what it says about the second coming. Invisibly, he came. Sure. Okay. Um, let's see. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. And I know the apostles are going, take us with you. Get us out of here. Persecution. And I don't want to be public enemy number one. They're going to remain in the world. And I'm coming to you. There's going to be a separation. And then he says, holy father. Do you see that? It's the only place he calls God Holy Father. And you, you and I read that as Christians and we go, yeah, God's holy and he's our father. Move on. Those two things are, in a way, for humans, diametrically opposed. You either have a loving, forgiving, caring father, that's my God, or you have a holy God who is so perfect. He has to judge sin. Well, which is it? He's both. He's holy. That's why he's going to judge sin. For believers, he's also Papa, Daddy, Father. Some people get upset when I mention that when God is mentioned as Father, it's not the word Father. It's the word Abba, which is more what we would say, Papa, Daddy, Dad right? I don't know about you, but my brother and I didn't say, oh, father, when is dinner? Did you call your father father? That would be such a British, like, 1800s thing. I, we called him dad or daddy when we were really little. Father, he's papa. It's a form of, a, a term of great endearment and intimacy. Okay, where were we? I'm coming to you. Holy father, protect them, the eleven because they got a lot of work to do by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we were one. What's that last part about unity? Show me, imagine 11 guys that are behind enemy lines during a, a war, 11 guys. And that's all they have is each other for right now. They're going to have the Holy spirit. I know those 11 guys behind enemy lines, taking fire, if you will, are better be united. Because if they're fighting and arguing and not going to work, one might betray the other. God really wants believers to be united and be one. Very important. You say, well, some Christians believe different things than we believe. Augustine, a church father, is the first one who said this. I know others have said it too. You may have heard this. In the essentials, unity. What do you mean essentials? The things you have to believe to be a Christian. The Bible is God's word. 
Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And because of that, he paid for my sins and offers us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. We make him our Lord and Savior. We follow him. Christ will return. That's a short version. We're saved by grace, not by our works. Those are essentials. So if you say, if Boyce says, I'm a Christian, and I say, what do you think of the Bible? And he says, I, I think it's a bunch of stories, made up stuff. That's an essential. We can't agree to disagree. Okay, I'm going to let that go. I don't believe Jesus was a real human being. I don't believe he died on the cross. Muslims believe in Jesus as a prophet. They don't believe he died on the cross. They believe Judas died in his place. Is that crazy or what? Where do they get that? Anyway, there are essentials. Augustine said in the essentials, there has to be unity. We can't give up any of those things I just mentioned. In the non-essentials, liberty, freedom. What are non-essentials? How to baptize, for example. There are denominations that pour water over the head of the person being baptized. There's denominations that sprinkle water baptized. There's denominations that dunk the whole person. Is that something that I would say, oh, you're not a Christian if you're a pourer or a sprinkler? It's non-essential. Could he be saved believing that you sprinkle? Sure. Okay. Speaking in tongues. I believe speaking in tongues is still extant today on earth. I don't believe it's speaking in tongues is still extant on earth. It's not an essential. Let it go. Liberty. We're all believers in the essentials. Um, there's all kinds of other things that are non-essentials. In So in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, which is the old English word meaning love. Let's all strive to get along. Okay, let's keep rolling. Protect them by the power of your name. They're going to need it. And you know what? He did. You say, well, they all died. When the time came, they had accomplished what he wanted them to. They died. But they and others wrote the 29 books of the New Testament, planted churches all over that area, and sent other disciples out, and mission accomplished. It spread all over the world. Now with television and the internet and the printed word, which happened several centuries ago, spreading even more. Verse, 15, uh, verse 12, sorry. Um, let me look at my notes here. I thought I had more to say on that and probably didn't. Um, mm -hmm. The denominations, you know the denominations? I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. I'm Assembly of God. I'm, we're non-denominational. We're interdenominational. Listen, all the denominations are man-made. Did you hear me? All of them. They're all man-made. Why? They divided over the dumbest stuff. The dumbest stuff. They all believe the essentials, but we want to do it our way. Okay, start another denomination over dumb stuff. So when you die, I always like to say, and you go to heaven, don't say, hi, where's the Presbyterian neighborhood? I'd like to kind of settle there. God's going to go, what? Right? It's down there, you know. To the left. Um, where's the Baptists? We're all mixed in. We're all one in Christ. Um, okay, the denominations, we talked about that. Oh, another non-essential. I've seen people get in fiery arguments about this one. When will the rapture be? Before the tribulation, after the tribulation, during the halfway through the tribulation. Non-essential, who cares? You know what? 
it'll all pan out the way it's supposed to. Those of you that don't believe like I do, I'll explain it to you on the way up. Okay. Let's I'm just kidding. All right. Um, so yeah, you know what our denomination is? We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the early church, they called it the way Christianity. That was it. I'm a, you're a follower of the way. That was it. From that, we got Catholics, Baptists, you know, on and on and on. Uh, okay. Yeah, we covered that, didn't we? Um, okay, back to verse, where were we? 12? Uh, so that they may be one. Yeah, unity. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. Stop right there. That's an amazing thing to me. It sounds like he was a bodyguard for them. And you say, we never saw you do anything. But he did, didn't he? Kept him safe supernaturally. Once he had chosen those 11 guys, because destiny had to happen the way God said, it would be impossible for any of those guys to die before him. Impossible. Oh, he got hit by a horse and he died. Impossible. They've got to spread the gospel. God chose them. He, Jesus, protected them. But he's leaving. What's going to happen now? I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except, oh, he did lose one. Did he? Except the one doomed to destruction, or really it reads the son of perdition. We'll talk about that in a second. None has been, who does he mean? Judas. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction or the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Okay, what about Judas? Everyone that was chosen would come to him. Was Judas chosen for salvation and he messed the whole thing up? No. Judas was chosen as the betrayer. Oh, okay. So he was never saved. Never. The devil entered into him. You can't be a believer and have the devil enter into you. That was during the Last Supper, remember? Second course, right? And all of a sudden, boom. my point is this. Judas, it seems like by what I just said, is off the hook then. God chose me to betray him. Wasn't my fault. Uh, I don't have it in my notes, but off the top of my head, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, it's been foreordained and prophesied that this dude is going to, someone's going to betray me, okay? God's plan, chosen to do that. And yet he says, but woe to the man who does so. It would be better if he was never born. So what is that? That is God's sovereignty. He chose him to betray and man's responsibility. Judas, of his own free will, betrayed Jesus. He never believed. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. Well, he was sorry. He hung himself. Listen, Judas messed up. Peter messed up. Judas wasn't saved. He hung himself. Peter was saved. You know what he did? Went back to Christ. And when you do, no matter how bad you mess up, Judas, Jesus doesn't say get lost. He says, welcome home, daughter, son. Judas was never saved. None has been lost except the son of perdition. This is interesting. You say, what is that? Perdition is hell. 
basically. Okay, to be a son of perdition is someone with those qualities. Je Jesus nicknames James and John the sons of thunder, meaning what? They were loud, right? Bold, right? The sons of thunder. Other people were sort of timid. I picture Matthew being kind of timid. If you ever watch the chosen, Matthew's kind of a little bit of a nerd, kind of quiet, you know. James and John, bold, sons of thunder. This guy, Judas, is the son of hell. That's his characteristic. That's his destiny where he's headed one day. Um, okay, so the son of perdition or doomed to destruction, it means the same thing. That's his character and his destiny. Um, it's, this is kind of a weird thing. There's only one other place in the New Testament where the name son of perdition appears. Anybody know? Guess who it's talking about? The Antichrist. Wow. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. It is in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. He's going to be a hellish-like figure that's going to rule the world, and he's going to end up in hell, thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation uh, chapter 20. But some from that have said, and I won't sell this too hard, some have said Judas, son of perdition, Antichrist, son of perdition. Is there a similarity? Well, at least in the name there is, and the character, there's a certain similarity. Some think because Judas, if you remember, we talked about this in the Last Supper, didn't we? Judas was the ultimate counterfeit believer, the ultimate faker the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. When Jesus says, one of you, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Aren't you expecting everybody to go, Judas, Judas? No. Who else could it be? They don't. What do they say? Is it me? They go around. Is it me, Lord? Is it me? The ultimate faker. I won't sell this too hard, but there are commentators that say on this passage that the Antichrist is going to be the ultimate faker. He's going to be so holy and so into the Lord. And people are going to go, you think he's the Antichrist? He's so Christian. How can you say that? He always talks about God. What ends up happening, if you read Revelation 13, is he demands worship eventually. That's not what a Christian does. Christians worship, right? We don't demand, everybody bow down and worship me. You'll never hear me say that. Okay. Um, okay, verse 13, I am coming to you. He's talking to his father now. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, that's the 11, and all of you may have the full measure of my joy within them. I'm saying all this legitimately praying to you, Father, but I'm saying this out loud for the 11 who I know are listening, so that, and all of you were reading it, right, so that we will have ultimate joy. You say, yeah, joy. <laughs> all he's been talking about is all these bummers that are going to happen, but in the midst of those bummers, if you know that the one you believe in knew about them, predicted them, and even caused them to happen, it should give you joy that everything's under control. Even when it seems like, do you read the newspaper? Nothing, everything's out of control in the U.S. God is not in heaven looking down on 
your life or your state, California, or wherever state you live, whatever state you live in, or your country or the world. And oh, Russian troops are over near the Ukraine and China's rattling its swords and God's not in heaven going, oh no, I didn't, did you see that coming? He's not shocked. It's all coming into fruition the way it's supposed to. But I will say this, and it's not in my notes, so don't look for it. If the Bible's right about the end times, for there to be a one world government, can America remain the most powerful country in the world? No. And you, Jeff said, we're not anymore. Who knows? But I think for there to be a one world government, if somebody formed a one world government now with plenty of money and power, a lot of countries, Venezuela would go, we're in, we're in big, we're in El Salvador, we're in Cambodia, we're in America, Germany, England would go, huh, forget it. I believe for there to be a one world government, what has to precede that is a huge crash. I don't know if that means war, pestilence, a devaluation of the dollar drastically, I don't know. But I believe for everybody to get on board, things have got to really change and they got to change quickly. Am I saying it's going to happen this year or next year or this decade? I have no idea. Jesus might come back soon. It might be 400 more years. When I started this Bible study in 1990, there were some older folks in the Bible study who, re, who were alive and young people in World War II. And they remembered that a lot of people thought Hitler is the Antichrist. Clearly, the mark of the beast is that swastika thing. He's killing Jews. Um, Rome has to be involved. Okay, Mussolini is his, kind of his right-hand mind, his right-hand man, his buddy. He must be the false prophet with him. This is it wrong. I remember being told in the early 80s, 1980s, Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters, six letters, six letters, is the Antichrist. Oh, come on, people. When is the end times coming? It's closer than it's ever been before. <laughs> Shall we move on? Um, so that they'll have the full measure of my joy. Do you know, I believe Jesus was a really joyful person. I don't think he was somber and serious. And I think he was joyful. He knew what was going down was exactly the way it was supposed to be. He knew his father. I think he was a happy, joyful individual. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. He says, I, Jesus, have given them your message, your word. I've given them your word. You could even take that to mean he's the logos, which means word, by the way, in Greek. He's could be even saying, I've given them myself. And the world's response to God's words, did you see what it is? Hatred. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world. The world wants you to get in line, conform, be like us, accept sin. Come on, everybody's different. We can't do that. Verse 15, they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. End of verse 14. He's not of the world at all, is he? The perfect 
citizen of the world by never sinning. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil. NIV inserts the word one. So does that mean the evil in general or the evil one? Probably both. Okay. I, I, I think it's both. I think it's demons. I think it's all the evil in the world, all the temptation, all the Sodom and Gomorrah stuff. But I think when the disciples heard verse 15, they went, oh, darn. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. No, no, take us with you. We're ready. Let's just go. They can't go. They got so much work to do. They're going to spread Christianity and make it the biggest religion in the world. They're going to write the gospels. They're going to write letters, some of them. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. This prayer, by the way, although more words, more verbose, parallels the, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Do you remember? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, He talks about God's name earlier. He talks about God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He talks about protect them from evil. Remember that at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So there's some parallels, and yet there's some differences. Um, I'm not going to take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. By the way, that's the only way we could be protected from the evil one. So what does that mean? Good. We're impervious to any bad stuff or harm. Wrong. Impervious to sickness and COVID. Wrong. Well, then what is this? It's spiritual. Satan cannot take over your body and possess you. Holy Spirit lives inside there and says, get lost. I live here. Can Satan oppress and try to zap Christians? Yes. When you became a Christian, you got a bullseye painted on your back. Did you know that? By Satan. Satan is after you way more than he's after those drunks in the bar, the people at the house of prostitution or wherever they're sinning on Wall Street or wherever. If they're his, Satan leaves them alone. Doesn't like you, though. Doesn't like me. Um, so protect them from the evil one. So we are protected from the evil one. Does that mean we can't die martyrs' deaths? No, could happen. Hope it doesn't, but it could happen. But the evil one seeks to kill and destroy and send you to hell. Cannot happen for you. It's already been decided. In fact, it was decided before Pluto, Neptune, and Venus were made, right? Um, protect them from the evil one. That would include demons. That would include Satan, all the evil. Protect them from it. Verse 16, they are not, oh, we're almost out of time. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Kind of a repetition. Um, that's important that we remember that. We're not of the world. We're not supposed to conform to the world's values. What does the world value? Sexual freedom. Don't do it. Money is everything. He who dies with the most toys wins. What? Go for all the gusto you can. You only go around once in life. Was that Miller beer? One of those, right? You only go around once in life. Go for it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Worldly philosophy. If it feels good, do it. Especially if no one's going to know. God knows. Not right. 
the worldly philosophy. Listen, whether you know it or not, you're getting indoctrinated, and so am I. Do you have a television? Well, we don't watch that much. Commercials are so mind-blowing how much evil there is in commercials. Um, anyway, now that I made you feel guilty, we're going to quit there and we're going to close in prayer. Um, we will be here. Oh, I know what I want to announce. Today is the 7th of December, Pearl Harbor Day. Um, we will, uh, which is a day we should remember like 9-11, by the way. Um, we will meet next Tuesday, the 14th, and the following Tuesday, the 21st. Then we will take two or three weeks off, depending on how lazy the teacher is. And I'll email everybody and we'll start back again, continuing John in January. Once we get done with John, we go on to another book. I don't know which one yet, but we'll do it. Let's close with prayer and then we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for your, your word, God, and for this unbelievable chance to eavesdrop and listen to your son pray. First of all, help us to not be those overconfident. We got all this. We got it on our own. We have no confidence in our flesh. We have total confidence in you and in your spirit and in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can remember that you conquered the world despite what goes on in it, and it's all going to turn out good and for your glory. Lord, if we get that tribulation or persecution, help us to remember these things, God, and to rely on your Holy Spirit living in us, illuminating us, convicting us, leading us. I pray that each of us would finish the work you have for us. The person you want us to witness to is right under our nose, maybe a, a relative, a friend, a neighbor, co-worker, old friend. Help us to finish the work you gave us to do, God. And all the glory goes to you. We're thankful, thankful for your son and the beauty of your word and your character. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for being here on Zoom. We'll see you next Tuesday. I'm going to turn my screen off and hit stop there. There we go.